thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi David Levincruz on Parashat Truma. The Pardes Learning Seminar this summer will be in Jerusalem, a five-day experience with some of Pardes' finest faculty. If you've thought about studying with us during the summer, this is your opportunity. For more details, please visit pardes.org.il forward slash seminar. And now, here is Rabbi David Levincruz. Hi, everybody. One of the most interesting phenomenons that we have in modern Jewish life is the idea of space which sort of is and sort of is Jewish space. This could be a museum that is run by the general community or the Jewish section of a bigger museum. It could be the Hebrew department at a university. It might be the Holocaust memorial in a certain town. They deal with Jews. They're about Jews, but they're not sponsored by Jews. They're not primarily meant for Jews. Is this Jewish space? Is this part of who we are um, And is this part of our identity? We're going to explore that issue today and also ask ourselves why is it important at all by looking at the Parsha and looking at two very, very interesting Chuvot, one from the 1800s and one from last century that deal with the shul, the synagogue, and what you're able to do in the synagogue and gives us an insight both into something very long ago, which is the um, temple or the tabernacle, the Mishkan, which we read about in the parasha, and to something very modern, which is the whole idea of liminal Jewish space. We'll start off by quoting on the source sheet the famous statement from this week's parasha, Basuli Mikdash B'Shachanti B'Tocham, you shall make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And many commentators point out that God doesn't say that God will dwell in the sanctuary, but God will dwell in us. So what does it mean for God to dwell in us? What does it mean to create holy space? And what does it mean to create Jewish space? How do we do that? Um, the first response we're going to look at is by the Khatam Sofer, Rav Moshe Sofer, Hungarian rabbi, who many credit with being the founder of the Haredi, or what is often called the ultra or the fervently orthodox community. He was born in Frankfurt in 1762, but spent the bulk of his life in Hungary, became an in, built an influential yeshiva, had many, many students, and died in 1839. And he is asked about whether a shul, this is in response to Khatam Sofer or a Chayim 1, response to 28. Somebody is asking about a shul that is building a new building and they want to know, can they put the bima in front of the shul? The bima, which is where people read from, the Torah, is usually in many, or it was, in the middle of the shul. And the Khatam Sofer is asked, can it be built in front of the shul? Now, this may seem very, very technical, But what's going on behind that is you have a nascent reform movement and they very often would put the bima in the front for it to be more decorous, maybe for it to look like other houses of worship. 
But even so, even if the Khatam Sofer isn't worrying about this, he's very worried about change. He knows that there are new things afoot and he wants to stop it. And like all Chuvot, there are certain tensions within the Chuva which the responder, the responder has to deal with. So if we look at our source sheet, the Rambam says, Maimonides, that the beam is placed in the center so that everybody can hear, and that's where the person who gives the Devar Torah or the Torah reader should stand. Very, very practical reason that is given. And the Kesem Mishnah, who is Rav Yosef Karo, the writer of the Shulchan Aruch, who is commenting on the Rambam, he says that nowadays it very, very often happens that it is built at the end and the side. He says, because positioning the beam in the middle is not an obligation and everything is according to the place and time. Very modern, very modern sounding. And he says in those days, there were very large synagogues, so they did it in the middle so that all could hear. But in our times, because of our sins, we, our synagogues are small, so it's appropriate and good for the beamer to be on the one side and not to be in the middle. As far as we're concerned, that seems everything should be fine. There's permission. It doesn't seem there's much halacha involved. So that's one tension if we have between the Rambam and the case of Mishnah. The second one is between Sanhedrin in the Mishnah, where it says we are allow, able to extend the city on, of Jerusalem or the courtyards, according to a court of 71 judges. So we see that Jerusalem, this holy city, can actually be extended if the proper situation exists. As opposed to this, in Orla, in the Mishnah, it says, Hachadash Asur Minat Torah, anything new is prohibited by the Torah, is how the Khatam Sofer understood it. It really is talking about grain, which can only be eaten when it no longer has the status of Khadash. But the Khatam Sofer making a pan, which of course is innovation in and of itself, says that anything new is permitted in the Torah. And this is how it gets acted out in the response. He quotes the Rambam, he quotes the Kesev Mishnah, and then he says why he thinks it should remain in the center. He says, and it's going to be very interesting because we'll see something similar in the reform response. As for the grounds for requiring the beamer to be at the center, I suggest the following reason. Since we view the beamer as the equivalent of the altar, which we read about in this week's parasha, and the inner altar in the temple before the holy ark was placed in the center of the house, exactly between the lamp and the table, the beamer too should be placed in the center of the shul so as to make it as similar as possible to the Beit HaMikdash, and there should be no change in our micro-temple. The shul is a small temple, and therefore we should try and be it as much like the temple as possible. He says the idea of the Kesef Mishnah doesn't apply. Those shuls were getting smaller, whereas our shul, in this case, is getting bigger. And he says even if the Kesef Mishnah is right, and even though you are allowed to make Jerusalem bigger, he says, for the second, we still shouldn't move it away, he says, for the second temple was larger than the first temple, yet there was no change of the holy utensils, the altar, the lamp, 
and the table were not moved from the centre, even though in proportion to the size of the building, the centre will now be in a different place. This new synagogue, this new shul, also merits having a bima in its centre. And he says, anything new is forbidden by the Torah. Very, very strongly saying that our shul is like a temple, like a mishkan, and very, very much saying that things should be as they always were. However, in the process of saying things should always be as they were, he actually has to be a historical in a way and ignore people who say the opposite. A very different tshuva is written in the 1900s by the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the Reform Rabbinicalization um, um, Organization in the United States in the year 5753. And the question is, can we put flags on the bima? Many, many synagogues, many shuls in America have a flag of America, a flag of the state of Israel. Is this, does this practice border on idolatry? Is the question, is this a symbol of Jewish worship? Is, are these holy or Jewish objects the flag of America and the flag of the state of Israel? Asks Rabbi Philip Bentley from Hunting Station, New York. This tshuva too, also fascinating, also it is dependent on certain contradictions or tensions, I should say, um, more than contradictions. We read in Avot, this is not, not all of these are exactly from the tshuva, but are, are alluded to. In Avot, in the Mishnah, 3.2, it says, Rabbi Hanin, the vice high priest said, Pray for the welfare of the government, for it not for the fear it inspires, everyone would swallow their neighbor alive. Very Hobbesian approach to life. We need governments because otherwise people would destroy each other. So this, and this is one of the reasons why in many synagogues there is a prayer for the country, um, including Israel and many other countries in England, there's a prayer for the Queen. Many, many countries, there's a prayer for the government or for the um, rulers. So this seems a fairly po somewhat positive view. In Avot, the first chapter, we have a much more negative view. view. Shmai used to say, love work, hate the ruling classes, and do not attempt to draw near to the authorities. Again, it's not a complete tension, but it does seem to be saying that the ruling authorities are not so great. Keep away from them. So that's one tension. A second tension is found in Rosh Hashanah 24b. It says a certain synagogue had been destroyed and was rebuilt, and there was a statue of the king in it, and Rav and Shmuel and Shmuel's father and Levi would all enter and pray there, and they were not concerned about arousing suspicion of idol worship. The issue here is not the king, but the fact is that we see that in the shul there was a statue of the king, and that does not seem to be an issue. This is in tension with the Gates of Prayer, the Reform Prayer Book, which says, we are is well, it was the Reform Prayer Book then, we are Israel, our Torah forbids the worship of race or nation, possessions, or power. 
So these are the tensions, and how do they get acted out in the tshuva which you can find online, at the source I gave you. It starts off by saying the, similar to the Khatam Sofer, that the shul is based upon the temple, and it says uh, the synagogue bima is customary adorned with the Ner Tamid, the Aron HaKodesh, and the menorah, the um, symbols which evoke the original sanctuary. And he says none of the appurtenances of the sanctuary were connected what with what we would call nationhood. It was all about God. It was not about worship of people. It was all about God. And it seems to be that, that therefore, that it would be absolutely improper to have something about the nation, which is not about God, but about people. But, says the Chuva, which is not, which is written by the committee, he says that he quotes Agmara, they quote Agmara, that says that they prayed in the place there was a statue. They quote Rav Moshe Feinstein, the orthodox commentator, orthodox decisor, who says that it's all right. He doesn't think it's a great idea, but he thinks it's fine if that's what people want to do. They quote an earlier 1954 response, which says that this is the flag is the equivalent of the prayer for the government. Um, and the um, it also quotes um, the in the early tshuva, the, where the flag almost takes on religious connotation. It says it may well serve to strengthen us in the spirit of worship. The flag symbolizes the loyalty of our country and our zealous support of its rights and interests. The flag speaks to us with the voice of religion and therefore of the sanctity of our religious symbols. Almost religious language for the flags. A later 1977 response is a little bit less strident, I would say, and but nevertheless says it's all right if that's what you want to do. Um, and um, that it's a good thing to show that one has devotion to America and to Israel. And then it ends up very, very interestingly. It says at the same time, this is the present response, the committee believes that the language no longer reflects the precise relationship of many reformed Jews. We are properly suspicious of rhetoric equaling God and king and God and country. This might have been good once, but if it's not idolatry, for some it is close to idolatry because it can bring up chauvinism, racism, and ethnic intolerance. It's not saying all countries do that and all flags do that, but it said it does smack of it. I would imagine today that there are many people, this was written a while ago, I would imagine today that there are many people who feel this even more strongly, mixed feelings towards the flags and to different um, nations. And it says we should therefore say rather that for us the flag serves an expression of a religiously legitimate devotion if you so choose by putting flags in the building. So while the Khatam Sofer is saying no, and this one is saying yes, it does, the reform response it does, is aware of the problematics of introducing new things. It's not saying everything new is great and wonderful. It's not saying, whereas the Khatam Sofer said, Chadash Asur Minatorah. This is not saying, Chadash Chiyuv Minatorah. It's obligated to put something new. It recognizes that new things have to be looked at and thought about and pondered 
before they're introduced. So for the Chatam Sofer, we create holy space and Jewish space by keeping as far to the past as possible. And our modernity is expressed by stopping the clock and saying no more changes. For the, In the reform response, it's also a question of being as much like the past as is good for you. But one can introduce more modern aspects. The One might argue that a Jewish modern Jewish aspects that one could introduce into a building could be um, access for disabled, built according to specifications of um, environmental concerns. And there also might be more modern types of things one can put in, like modern art, different flag of it, uh, sta- map of Israel, map of the Jewish communities, all different modern ways that could make a building Jewish and holy. What is fascinating about these two chuvot is both of them are discussing liminalities, what may or may not be allowed to come in from the outside. And it's very natural when one discusses what is holy or what is Jewish to do this. The Torah also does it and says certain people can't go to certain places in the temple, certain things are forbidden in the temple. There's a lot of liminality, not liminality, there's a lot of discussing who's in and who's out there also. But if we look at our parashat truma, what is fascinating is that it says what is in the temple that makes it holy and Jewish. It's not talking about what's outside, but what's in. And I would like to say, that today the same applies. The issue of who sponsors it or what's inside it, what's it meant for, is far less important than what's inside. If it's filled with Jewish pieces, if it expresses Jewish values, ancient and modern, then it is a Jewish building and it's part of who we are. I'd like to claim that the same can go for us the people as well. If we would stop worrying perhaps sometimes about who is out and who is in and more about what is the content of our Judaism. I'll speak about myself. What is the content of my Judaism? How do I express itself? How do I bring things in? Then perhaps we really can become worthy of what we opened up by saying when the parasha says, Basuli Mikdash we can become sanctuaries and God will dwell within us. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. You can follow us on Spotify or at elmod.pardes.org for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Be sure to tune in next week as Rabbi Michael Hatton discusses Parashat Tetzaveh. Thanks for listening.